the hall was loud with drunken harlaws. Back to Game of Bones. It's good to be here. Episode 350, Micah. 350. Our 350th episode. Mm-hmm. That's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've hit a point in the year where there's definitely Game of Thrones news out there that we could discuss, but I feel like it goes into a little bit of spoilery territory, especially now with filming for season seven officially underway there's a lot of reports if you're interested in that stuff uh, you can of course check out watchers but uh, first off it's finally october which i feel like is a time of year where you can sit down with a good book and read and that's uh exactly what we're doing here you know we're going through our reading of a feast with dragons and these are two chapters from a feast with crows feast for crows feast for crows sorry See, see, when we start mixing titles well, together, I know we, we start, start making, making up our own, own stuff up. Yeah. It sounded <laughs> better anyway, so. <laughs> Again, this is, um, I want to say only two episodes in a row, but it's actually more than two episodes in a row. Micah, you called it on our last episode where you said another two chapters where we're just kind of shaking our head and, and going, how do these two things come together and create such a, not only a set, and of course that was part of a part of what we were doing when we were making the uh, Feast with Dragons reading order, but just the scale and the far-reaching nature of these chapters, while, the, while they're zoomed in to the particular moments that Asha and that Cersei are, are experiencing, they're also reaching further into the lore of Song of Ice and Fire, particularly with the Kraken's daughter uh, going... Uh, deep and expounding and, and uh, getting us really excited to eventually meet Euron Greyjoy and to see some of his treasures and to learn of some of uh, some of the lore he's found while exploring deep, deep. And I also bring up and we can talk about this more as we get deeper into both these chapters, but they're both I think it's very interesting that we have a chance to look at two women who are fighting to gain power and to gain respect in a world that doesn't always give grant that to to women and so it's interesting to read about these two women back to back because i think they both have very different motives and different ideas when it comes to what it means to have power um but to kind of see them both in that fight is kind of interesting agreed and i actually have a note here related to that where i said that no woman has ever ruled the ironborn and that was uh, a quote from asha's uncle on her mother's side. But I also made note right next to that saying Danny Cersei and, and just the fact that there's definitely this air about uh, certain characters that we read where, uh, and, and maybe it's even just a larger theme that we see throughout Westeros that women aren't necessarily looked upon to be rulers and at least in the West. And, you know, we come across all these very, very powerful female characters like Asha now, like Danny, like Cersei, like Brienne. So definitely something that I picked up on as well. Yeah. And I think that this chapter was really a victory lap for her showing that this isn't about solely being uh, the daughter of Balin Greyjoy. And this isn't about solely giving power to women because women need power. This is about 
the person that's inside of Asha Greyjoy. And like at the end of this chapter, when she's conversing with Christopher and she says that last line, you want a woman well and good and I'll put one in your bed tonight. Pretend she's me if that will give you pleasure. But do not presume to grab at me again. I am your queen, not your wife. Remember that. Asha, Asha she sheathed her dirk and left him standing there with a fat drop of blood slowly creeping down his neck, black in the pale light of the moon. I'm going to start saying that to right? everyone all the time. <laughs> she's she's coming back to the Iron Islands because, and we learned from this chapter, Balon Greyjoy is dead. And we also learned from this chapter that the cause of his death is still uncertain. People believe, certain people believe that he was murdered. Everyone knows that it was a very strange circumstance for Euron to arrive after traveling for so long, nay, the eve of Balon dying and falling due to a storm and a broken rope and a swinging bridge. And, and the conversation that, that Asha has with, with Roderick seems to elicit as much that there's certainly some suspicion around the fact that uh, Balin Greyjoy, who had traveled these bridges at various times in various forms of weather over the many years that he was in power, would suddenly fall uh, accidentally to his death um, right around the time that the crow's eye uh, has has resurfaced and returned from the east. So uh, I don't think that they're necessarily putting anything past him, but it's always where's the evidence to support the fact that that he, in fact, did kill his brother. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it was a little bit more uh, apparent uh, <laughs> in the show, in the fact that Euron throws Balon um, <laughs> and he from leaves, the bridge. leaves him I a scar. Laugh, but... Yeah. <laughs> what I really enjoyed about this chapter, too, uh, in addition to the, the character uh, development that we see uh, in, in Asha, is that uh, you learn a lot about the Greyjoy family. Uh, you learn a lot about um, Lady Alanis Morset. Uh, who is the mother of, of Asha uh, and, and Theon, who didn't really get a whole lot of uh, screen time, if any, uh, in mm -hmm. the show. Definitely not from an appearance standpoint, but even from a verbal mention. I don't, I don't even remember the name ever. Maybe there were references to your mother, but never to, to this woman um, by name. So I'm interested, you know, what role is she going to play? She's clearly in a very worsened state. Uh, she appears to be sick, but she's still there. She still has a presence and she calls out for Theon. And, and so how is this all going to factor in to decisions that Asha makes uh, moving forward? It breaks my heart the moment when she's talking about her mom and the fact that she's kind of avoiding her because she doesn't want to have to tell her that she thinks Theon is dead. And I just felt like that was kind of a sweet, not a sweet moment, but, you know, that's tough, like to be gone for so long and to, she mentioned she had, like we we're talking about her father dying. She mentioned that she had expected never to see her mother again, but in reality, it was Balon who, who passed while she was gone. And then having to come back with this weight or this news that their brother is also, or her brother is also presumably dead. I thought that was kind of a, a nice little moment. It's a lot at once, right? Mm -hmm. And she's been mourning for her missing brothers and for Theon um, for ages now, ever since Robert's rebellion. And um, she's been having trouble sleeping. And, and now I think that she's it mentions later in the chapter, Roderick says that she's doing better. Um, Asha really doesn't want to add another layer on top of that. And I asked myself, what purpose does this serve learning about her mother and learning about her aunt Gwyneth more than uh, just, icing on top of this situation here because from reading forward i know that she doesn't linger and she is going to old wick and she will go to the king's moot uh much uh 
against her uncle's wishes, she will go to the King's Moot. And from there, I don't know if she'll ever return. She might. But I ask myself, what was this for? And I feel like we were shown the the future, possibly, of a woman of mm-hmm. high stature on the Iron Islands and how this old patriarchal system serves them, how her aunt was still seven years the senior for this Harlaw Ten Towers castle and uh, remains not the leader, remains not the lord, remains a lady as Roderick rules it and... Uh, her mother is put in the same castle and taken care of. But again, it shows us women surrounding Asha. And uh, meanwhile, she's fighting for the Seastone chair. Mm-hmm. And, and going off your point, though, it, the fact that you have a completely new side to the Greyjoy family, if by marriage only, it's still there, right? So you, you because I think with the show, we've been come accustomed to obviously Theon and and, and Yara uh, and 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 Balon and of course this season the introduction of of the crow's eye but like you said you you have her mother you have her aunt you have her uncle um, you know we've we've traditionally been accustomed to uncles on Balon's side you know his brothers not necessarily the mother's side of the family so uh, it's clear, at least to me, that there's a close relationship between Asha and Roderick, and she takes very uh, kindly to his advice. She may not always agree with it, but clearly there there's a reason why she she goes and and seeks him out. And what's surprising to me is that she, you know, despite how fast word seems to travel within Westeros, she doesn't even know that uh, Dampair has, has called a king's moot. And right. I would think that the the main reason behind her returning home is to go to the king's mood. But in fact, she has absolutely no clue that this is even happening. Well, she says better at king's mood than a war. You know, it sounds like she's here. She's here regardless to take back her father's chair or to, I guess, at least initially when she learns that he's dead. I think that's probably a little bit of a relief that while the path there still might not be easy, hopefully regardless of what um, Roderick thinks she can get there without a lot of people having to die. Man, this path is almost unnavigable. You've got Euron, who's not only fated and storied, but he's also very rich. And he's also got the other seven islands to buy off. And he's also got the system in his favor where Balon's sons aren't present because they're air quotes dead. And she's a woman. And even her most loving and doting uncle, uh, even with his support, which he, you know, he understands what she's trying to do, even with his support, this is, you know, it's just well, basically this chapter from top to bottom, whether we're meeting 12 tooth that eventually got demoted to three tooth as a woman who's been in a, a steward in her uncle's care, old enough to have nursed the crone to health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was. I mean, you, you see where the system's wor- working in her favor, top to bottom, all of these things are against her. And, uh, I don't know. It's just it's just like it, it'd be hard enough if she weren't facing Euron from a militaristic standpoint. But but just all of the captains versus all of the captains, no matter her birthright, um, going into this king's mood, it would be tough enough. But the fact that this is all democratic and 
and there's all this other stuff that could happen. Like for the fact that this hasn't happened for four thousand years, and you're on Greyjoy still, even if he were to 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 lose, would still maybe kill everyone, like like history had in the past. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like she's going against history as well, um, and history is doomed to repeat itself, as as Roderick says over and over again. And so, yeah, I mean, it's exactly what you're saying. She has ten thousand things stacked against her, but she's still adamant that this is her her right and what she wants to do sounds like danny a little bit yeah yeah exactly i was thinking the same thing i was thinking as i was reading this i was thinking about their scene in season six with the two of them kind of giving each other the up down um just two powerhouses look you mean yeah but just two incredible powerhouses Mm. really um and it's it's kind of cool to get more of that backstory here. Right. Yet at the same time, it it it's another power struggle within the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros. It's nothing right. from from a ten thousand foot view that's that's new, right? I mean, we've we've been through for the most part the War of the Five Kings. We've seen the power struggle going on in King's Landing. Now it's taking place in the Iron Islands. That now that Balon Greyjoy has gone, and yet we know from both reading these books and from the television show that there's so much of a larger threat and it doesn't matter who sits the sea stone chair doesn't matter who sits the iron throne doesn't matter who's in power in winterfell or any other place there's a huge threat that is emanating from the north beyond the wall and when winter comes it's not going to matter who is in power Mm -hmm. in any of these places and so at the same time though it's very cool to kind of get into side the head of of somebody who is feeling as if this is her right her right to take this position of power based on the fact not only that she is the daughter of Balon Greyjoy but makes a very good and compelling argument later on as to why she should rule and yeah. and, mm-hmm. and and so that's what that's one of the things I think that George tries to get across. And it's interesting that we're in this time of an election in our country where we have the potential for the first woman to be president of the United States. It's 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 not just about the fact that that a woman can be president, it's that they're the best person fit to serve. And I think that's the case here with Asha. Well, and that's kind of what Roderick is telling her as well, if I'm remembering correctly, is that there is so much else going on in the world that she may be better served fighting on one of the sides of one of those kings that are going to rule the Iron Throne because who cares what happens on the Iron Islands? Not necessarily, but you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. is are her resources and her struggle going to be best served um, here kind of thing? And so I think that that's interesting. And I, I'm, I don't know mm-hmm. if I think that that's necessarily the best call, but... Yeah, I think that's absolutely another mm-hmm. point that Roderick makes. It's a moment, yeah. He he makes a point of, of Stannis or Tywin and take one side or the other and help them to victory. You know, basically stay out of the, the, the larger issue that's going on and just hope that you pick the side that wins. Mm-hmm. Roderick says it's you know we we're wanting for a lot of things us Ironborn here and this is the perfect time let's pick a side we can we can chart out some land we can be celebrated in the victory party for helping win the battles at sea because we're more than capable of doing it and when we meet him when we first meet him and we hear about her childhood there and about how she feels more comfortable there and about just through the the, the lens of a character like her 
um, how she feels about this uncle. And uh, obviously, we're already romanticized with him by the thought of him reading books on the ship while he's listening to Judgment out being a pirate and doing his thing. Like, it's it's pretty cool. It's interesting. And he's the bro- brother of Balon, and we expect him to be uh, pretty hardened and pretty sharp. And he, and he is in his own way, like, intellectually. And we meet him. And, and for me, he's one of the more likable character, characters I've met in the series. Just meeting him was so interesting because through her perspective, it's said that she walks upon him and he's got, like, candles around him. And he's reading books that were before there were telling of events from before the doom of Valyria. And I'm thinking about how even out here in Pike or out here on Harlaw, we have, you know, study of these, of these subjects. And we just have no idea who knows what and how that will affect the end game. And George kind of reminds us, you know, as we're reading this book, just having this chapter thrown in there, just having the scale of this person thrown in there. And like all of these great families and all these great houses across Westeros have their, have their standouts, you know, they have their, brave knights or their John Connington's or their, or even, you know, their, their versions of Targaryens and their own lore and their storied pasts that, you know, built the houses that are in the seven kingdoms. And it's just interesting when you experience that through the current circumstance, which like you said, we feel like isn't even a big deal because the white walkers are coming and ice and fire are going to have to fight each other. But isn't it clear that George is setting her up as the best option where she's taking counsel from someone that understands that the Greyjoys should help whatever the larger picture is. He's not saying we should help because we should help fight the White Walkers. He's saying we should help because it'll ultimately help ourselves. But we still kind of see that as the reader, as the best route. And I feel like once she gets to the King's Moot, that's going to be part of what she says. Mm -hmm. I will say, though, all of these things didn't really come to light for me in these chapters until I had reread them or read the series a couple times. Because when I was first going through the series and getting to all of these chapters, all I could think of was who cares? Because it feels so far removed. I think that we can make these connections because we understand the story better as a whole. But when you're going through this for the first time, this feels so far away from anything that I cared about or that I care about that's happening that it's so it was so difficult for me to care or like pay attention to all of this backstory with with the Ironborn and the Greyjoys and so to have the opportunity to go through and think about it in a bigger picture instead of just reading for plot and saying well this has nothing to do with the Iron Throne so I'm going to skim through it um, is interesting I think because I think that it's true that she's being set up as an important player, but mm-hmm. I don't think that that's something that's initially obvious. How was it on your first read, Micah? Much the same. I, I feel like, you, to Hannah's point, you were being pulled away from where you were comfortable for such a long period of time. Mm-hmm. I think we've talked about this too uh, on the show in the past, where you know you you got very used to being with the Lannisters and the Starks primarily, and and also with Danny, but mostly within the context of these families and and now you're you're going off a little bit into uncharted territory and you're being given a chapter with the name the Kraken's daughter which I'm sure you can figure out who that is but I feel like once you get into a feast for crows you get a dance with dragons you're moving in a completely different direction because the whole context of the story has shifted you know you're no longer um feeling safe in in any one place like maybe you did at the beginning of a game of thrones and so 
for me, it it was just yeah. Let, let's move on. Let's get to the point. I want to. I want to know more about what's happening with Tyrion. I want to know what's happening with Danny out east. What's going on with John up at the wall? Like this was just so. It, it just it, on the first read through, it just didn't have a whole lot of interest for me because I, I couldn't really get a good feel for where it was going. But when you go back and you read it through again, I think you have a much deeper appreciation for what's going on here and the groundwork that it's laying for the future. I, I, I think it's like that with any with any series, right? Mm-hmm. Especially when there's still two books to go. You don't know ultimately where things that happen in this chapter could inevitably play out. So uh, I'm, I'm definitely appreciating more going back and, and reading through it again. Do you think that it might be due to, I don't know, like George sort of introducing a new hero, not out of nowhere, but like almost out of nowhere? Yeah. You know? I would think so. I think that it's like Mike is saying, you're comfortable somewhere and you've been so long getting comfortable there. Stark, Lannister, Stark, Lannister. And then all of a sudden we're in the Iron Islands and of course it matters what happens there. But at the same time, are we reading this chapter and assuming that she could be a pivotal character later on when the final battle or the you know the the last conflict is is there mm-hmm. i mean she's got to be so. right yeah because in in this chapter really a whole different world is is being opened up to you i mean you you knew about theon and you knew about asha and you you knew about balin but now you're introducing the crow's eye who has spent time in the east you're introducing victorian you're getting mentions of of Aaron Dampere, uh, and and really getting a much broader sense of who some of the players are, and who some of the more influential and powerful families are uh, within the Iron Islands, right? So you're be, you're slowly starting to hopefully build that familiarity, much like you had done earlier on in this series with other families. So I do think that there is a chance that he could be introducing somebody that could be influential in the books to come. Yeah, otherwise I would hope hope so. Otherwise, I don't know why we're spending so much time. You know what I mean? <laughs> just, just to fill a few pages, yeah. yeah. It's not that it's not great, but you know what I mean? I wasn't alive when this was happening, but I, I can imagine if the online fandom existed when Lord of the Rings was out. It's, I don't know if you guys have read Lord of the Rings, but it kind of reminds me of the narratives we have from our little hobbit friend in Gondor when he is the steward of Lord Denethor. I, I enjoyed it because I learned more about their kingdom and about their customs and about the inner city as the conflict from Mordor was approaching. But I've heard you know complaints from certain friends that you know it, you left the side of a Frodo or or an Aragorn or a Gandalf where the the action was seemingly coming to a head and all of a sudden I'm here and it's it's you know a different kind of thing and I, I just feel like it's a tool in uh, in high fantasy that that gives the later answer to all of the problems a bigger feeling because you felt so much more of the foundation through so many different places and I I like the idea of knowing about the pirates that sail the seas in Westeros, you know? Like, I like knowing mm-hmm. them. I think it's really cool. And also, we, ju- we just left off in, in our last uh, episode with a Reek chapter where we were just reintroduced to Theon yeah. after many books. And I know this was strategically done, but now, you know, this week we're sitting here uh, with an Asha chapter where, uh, as talked about earlier, she is battling the conflict internally of having to tell her mother that Theon is dead and yet 
we all know that that is not the case. So how does this all play out moving forward, I guess? George just called. We need to know what's the answer. (laughs) Well, the transition out of this chapter on a lighter note, what did you guys think about her cute exchanges with Christopher Lord Botley? Oh, I hated it. Yeah. (laughs) It was so annoying to me. I feel like Tris is like the very stereotypical nice guy. You know what I mean? No, please tell us more. (laughs) (laughs) I need to look at my notes really quick. She stifled a groan. Yeah, I mean, he's this guy who's very much, and well, I was going to say I can sympathize with him, but I just can't really, who has been holding out to this idea of the fact that she needs to give him dozens of sons and be by his side. And she says, I don't want to have a dozen sons. I want to have adventures, Um, which I thought was was funny but uh i just he just felt like that nice guy who's like hey but i've waited around like you owe I'm me the best that you're gonna get yeah you owe me like but we had something i know it's been a hundred years like i've never touched another woman blah 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 and she's like okay well go outside like let's do <laughs> do something about that go touch one or two or ten i have touched more men than i can count some with my lips more with my axe yeah. Mm. <laughs> Find a broth. Oh, it'll cure you of your heartache. Do you think it was done at all to show her power? I mean, the fact that she is able to, you know, because so much of this chapter and, and in many other chapters, there's this constant struggle about women in power. Like, is this a moment for her where she can exert her power over Christopher and, and, is is that a point you think that George is trying to drive home? I think so. I think the point is more in the fact that she has mastered the desire for sort of smaller issue things in her life where she she's sort of zoomed out and she knows what she wants. I, I think like imagine if Daenerys had gone through the same tribulations growing up uh, with the, the orders of command and learning to be a leader in the same way that Yara has or the same way that Asha has. Imagine if Daenerys had all the skills and the, the know-how that, that, that Asha has right now. I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like she's getting them, but imagine if she had, I mean, this chapter was, like I said, Asha's victory lap. Like, we're learning a lot about this lady and the way she handles this. It's cold, but, you know, like, what, is this, what does this person expect? I think it just says a lot about the world she's come from. I think it says a lot about who she's traditionally supposed to be and what her traditional role should be. And we've seen, as we mentioned before, mm-hmm. her other elder women in her life. Um, and I think that Christopher just had this idea of the way that things were going to work out and her exerting her power. I don't know. I, I think that she's just, it just goes to show that she, she has a different it. path. Yeah, yeah. She has a different path and she's got different desires and she's got a different goals. And it's, it's against what would traditionally be her white picket fence ideal. Or red door. Or red door, yeah. <laughs> I don't feel impressed by this because she turned down a man. That's not the point for me. I feel impressed because a person was able to separate from those those earlier connections in life, clearly like Christopher wasn't able to do, and to rise up and to become someone that's strong enough that should be voted for as a leader. You know, whether it's a, a man or a woman, she's done this. And it just so happens that there's even more to her favor because the way her society is laid out has put her at even more of a disadvantage of falling prey to stuff like this. Nay, not only falling to prey, but being forced to go into these disadvantages. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's clear that she has focus and she's shown her ability to lead before. I mean, she comes back with Lady Glover and the Glover children as, as captives and 
her focus continues now knowing that there is a king's moot that she's going to go and, and try to win because she feels as others do that she is the most qualified person to to lead the iron islands and so i think that that plays a huge role in in the conversation that she has at the end of this chapter which she's as both you have said she's just not it seems very childish in a way the the interaction that happens at least on the part of Christopher and and she has moved so far beyond where he is as it relates to their relationship I like this moment she says kind of near the end of the conversation she says she had heard enough of this a sickly mother a murdered father and a plague of uncles were enough for any woman to contend with she did not require a lovesick puppy too <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was funny but that sums yeah. it up pretty well yeah i think it sums up this entire chapter really is you know these are all the things that she's dealing with and then the last thing she needs is this guy rolling up this episode is brought to you by movement watches we're excited to welcome this new sponsor to the show a company that was started by two broke college kids who wanted to wear stylish watches but couldn't afford them and much like we did with game of bones were passionate about a subject and began their own grassroots movement that grew into something that they could be exceptionally proud of and uh, we're excited to invite them to the show yeah and uh, i'd like to thank them i was able to uh, get one of these I've gotten actually a number of compliments on it. Uh, the one I chose was a silver face with a brown leather strap. I was jealous because I knew that we were getting a watch for this read, but I knew Micah works on Fifth Avenue, New York. And I was just like, Micah's so much more fashionable. <laughs> he needed than us. it more than you. <laughs> yeah, he is like, we have to take one. Like, who do we just hand him? Just Micah, I feel like you need this. This, <laughs> this is this is perfect for you. But you've been you've been putting it through its paces right now. What do you think? It's great. And and honestly, when when you sent me the the website, it, it's not easy to pick just one. Yeah, I was, I was going to go back and be like, "Well, is, I had the know, same problem." But, <laughs> but uh, I think that's one of the. Well, I would say one of the great things about it. Number one is that there are a lot of options to choose from. So, you know, depending on what type of watch you're looking for, but also the fact that it is so affordable. Uh, I know the watches start at just ninety five dollars. You know, at a department store, in many cases, you're looking for several hundred dollars that you have to pay. Uh, and so, I think the fact that you're able to go. Uh, and get something that's of this quality for a relatively reasonable price and is going to look good uh, is definitely something of value. We only invite sponsors on the show that we believe in. And if you go to movementwatches.com and see their lineup of very simple, minimal products that are made well, you'll understand why we invited them as a sponsor to the show. I'm going to cut in and tell everybody how you can get 15% off um, with free shipping and free returns. All you have to do is go to mvmtwatches.com slash owns. That's O-W-N-S. As I said before, these watches have a really clean design. I've been getting compliments ever since uh, I put it on people in the subway, people at the office. So now is the time to step up your watch game. As Hannah said, go to mvmtwatches.com slash owns. Join the movement. And this week's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. Whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron is bringing you the best. 
For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. It's getting colder outside. Autumn is approaching. It's time to come together and have a little date night, perhaps. We're still receiving a stream of your colorful images of your meals before and after with all the ingredients laid out prettily for an Instagram photo shoot. And we're very happy that you've found enjoyment through our connection with Blue Apron. You can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash owns. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash O-W-N-S. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Well, sorry, Sir Christopher, Lord Christopher. That's rough, but <laughs> Try it out on someone else. But don't try it on Cersei. No, 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 no. Not well, that's today. the thing that I think is really interesting that I mentioned a little bit at the beginning is the fact that we see someone like Asha, who I think has a much better control over her vanity and emotions versus Cersei, who, too, wants power and doesn't like wants total power Mm -hmm. um, but has such a a lack of awareness about anything anything about anything (laughs) i mean and cersei's kind of crazy and it's fun from a reader's perspective to go through this chapter and to get inside of her head but it's just it doesn't bode well for her goals um Unlike with Asha, when I think people can kind of rally behind her a little bit, with Cersei, it's like, well, nobody's going to put this woman in charge more so than she already is because she just has no awareness as to what is really happening. Also, there's no reason to. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Cersei, the benevolent leader, lead us out of this chaos. Well, she already has power, ours. though, is the thing. The thing that I keep coming she's, back to She's in this been chapter. the queen for so long, too. Yeah, and she's had this power... And it's, it's this idea that she wants total, complete, 100% control. But if she's already got some of it, so why doesn't she do something with it? Mm. I don't know. I don't know if Cersei wants to do anything. I just... She just, you know... Wow, we're going to get into like a big Cersei combo. <laughs> you ready? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we've always talked about how the show's done her favors and how we, we read her chapters. And it's like, good God, Cersei, you're so mad. And you're so drunk, too. You're mm-hmm. mad and you're drunk and you're just really mad at the same time. Mm-hmm. You're just not she happy is. how things are going. All you have to do is go to the second paragraph. It said, for herself, she wanted sleet and ice, howling winds, thunder to shake the very stones of the Red Keep. She wanted a storm to match her rage. I understand why she's so mad. She had her firstborn son, who she loved very much, stolen from her. He was murdered mm-hmm. at his wedding right in front of her, for God's sakes. And not that long ago. No. And now he's getting remarried, you know, to the same person that her son married. And it's like, no one cares that Joffrey's dead except her. And it sucks. Yeah, I will say, and we'll talk about how crazy she is throughout this chapter. But I will say that you can't, the one thing you can say for Cersei is that she really loves her children and she's fiercely protective of them and she'll do anything for them. And while she may take that trait to the extreme, you know, it's a good thing that she, she loves her children and she's so afraid for Tommen um, that even as Jamie kind of runs down this list of everything that's been prepared to keep him from being poisoned or being protected that nobody it's not good enough for her it'll never be good enough for her because she has this prophecy looming over her head and nobody understands so much so 
that at one point doesn't she mistake Olena for Maggie the Frog? Yeah. And the prophecy doesn't help matters. It's obviously lended to her behavior for her entire life. And that's kind of just the the sad stuff about Cersei. Just the the privileged upbringing and the secrets and the lies and the deceit, which are the same thing, but all the while, you know, being paranoid, not crafting the right perspective or, or, or good perspective who's to say what which one is the correct one. She's still alive, right? But unfortunately, like we said, Joffrey's been murdered and this wedding is taking place and she's severely pissed off about it. I mean, this is like, she can't handle it. And Jamie being unshaven and not being on her side doesn't help the matter. She's so mad at Jamie too because just at the worst time, Jamie decides this is when I'm going to start being air quotes honorable and not, you know, talking behind people's backs so much or not doing all the other things that we used to share together so much. And mm. she, when she's lost so much, she loses him too. And she's pissed off about that too. I'm, I'm happy that you mentioned the word paranoia because I feel like that sums up, at least for me, the entire chapter, if I could pick one word, um, you know, from the fact that Sir Boros is, is going to be tasting every single thing that Tommen is going to eat. You know, she wants eyes and ears inside of Tommen's bedroom. She burns down the Tower of the Hand. For God's sake. Because crazy. she thinks there's the chance, the hope that Tyrion and Varys may still somewhere <laughs> be somewhere, sorry, I should say, inside of the tower. Listeners, if you haven't read this, let me just say the, the over Christmas, when I became unsullied, like so many of you, and I read this chapter, I was like, holy shit, on the night of Tommen's wedding, this is what happens. At the end of the wedding celebrations, right? She's going through all this stuff and we'll touch on it. But at the very end of it, she was like, everyone, people, and this is her getting up, like stumbling because she can barely stand. Uh, because she's been drinking so much. She's like, everyone, please come outside and meet us. We'll light a candle in the honor of uh, this wedding, right? She walks them outside, and she has people fire arrows. The pyromancers are humming. They're, they're loving this. This is the greatest thing that's happened to them since the, the Battle of Blackwater Bay, right? Mm -hmm. And they totally. fire arrows into the open windows of a massive tower in their massive city, and it explodes. They burned down it just it's it's insane that is insane <laughs> to do on the night of your son's wedding it's fucking crazy and everyone just kind of cheers and gasps like whoa look at those fireworks kind of thing like cersei's crazy let's so all surreal. sit through this yeah. well and i think that micah your point of paranoid is a really good one because before that kind of when she's talking about why she wants to burn down the tower of the hand she says something along the lines of and I don't know if she's being 100% serious, but she says something along the lines of Tyrion could be under the floorboards listening as they um, plot on how to keep Tommen safe. And it's just paranoia. Oh, yeah. There's there's no question. And, and in fairness, she has a right to have some level of paranoia because her son, as Zach said, was just murdered at his own wedding. Brutally. Yes, brutally. He tried to open his own throat with his fingernails. Mm -hmm. Yes, very well depicted on on the television show. But I do feel like a lot of this paranoia is is somewhat misplaced. And when she is having conversations with other people in this chapter, I wonder if that paranoia is sort of 
overshadowing, clouding her ability to make good judgments. You know, the conversation that they have about uh, Sunel, you know, is she in fact really spying? You know, or is it just something that she's willing to believe because, well, let's face it, the whole world is against Cersei. Mm-hmm, Nobody right. likes her. Nobody you know, wants anything but to see her completely and utterly fail. You know, her conversations with her uncle, you know, it's just she, she's beginning that process of really putting herself in a position of um, like she, she's isolating herself. She, mm-hmm. She's going down the road now where she's starting to push away all of the people that care about her and could potentially keep her safe in very, very difficult situations. And what's surprising to me the most is that she's, she's doing it to her family. And I don't know if it's because now that her father's dead, she feels betrayed by Tyrion that she doesn't fully trust Jamie. Again, I feel like the paranoia, you know, the japes that she has towards him are unfounded uh, a little bit. Uh, And, and the same thing with Kevin Lannister, you know, it's just, these are the people that you want in your corner. These are the people that you should be putting your trust in to protect Tommen, to pre- protect Marcella and Dorne, but you're not. Like you're you're moving even further away from them. You're only focusing on yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to the point as well where she wants Tommen to be cloaked in the Lannister red instead of the or Tommen to cloak Marjorie with the Lannister cloak, which I thought was a really weird point that she would care so much. Um, about Not I don't know her family and protecting yeah. going around girlfriends. Yeah, well, and of, I feel Queen of Thorns had that one. She was like, "LOL, no, that's weird." But I just it, Cersei's you know vanity and paranoia is just overpowering any sort of political savvy because there's millions of rumors that these kids aren't actually her and Roberts that they're actually her and Jamie's, and she continues to kind of mm-hmm. perpetuate those because she's just so blind and, and caught up in right. her own little version of what the world looks like. Um, and I thought that that was such a telling moment that she would try and pull that. Um, but I did think that it was funny because Lady Olena was just like, are you serious? <laughs> the line is, and wouldn't a stag be more fitting for King Robert's trueborn son? Yeah. In my day, a bride donned her husband's colors, not his lady mother's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was so good this chapter. She's so on point. Yeah. Here's Cersei's inner monologue about Jamie. How could I ever have loved that wretched creature? She wondered after he had gone. He was your twin, your shadow, your other half, another voice whispered. Once perhaps she thought no longer he has become a stranger to me. And another thought inside of her mind, just just to show where she is. This is uh, as the wedding begins. This is wrong, she thought. It is too soon. A year, two years, that would have been enough time. High Garden should have been content with the betrothal. Cersei stared back to where Mace Tyrell stood between his wife and mother. Uh, before I go on, of course they should have been okay with the betrothal. You forced me into this travesty of a wedding, my lord, and I shall not soon forget it. I feel like the Tyrells are, you know, with Elena's coolness aside, they're just taking advantage of the situation so hard. Well, they set up the situation in the first mm-hmm. place. Oh, yeah, of so, course. <laughs> of course they want to see it through and make sure that Marjorie marries Tommen. And, and so... As quickly I, as possible. Yeah, you're right. 100%. They should have been fine just with the betrothal and let it sit until Tommen was of age to actually consummate the marriage. Yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, 
be in a position where where he could fittingly rule. Uh, I think that you know right now Cersei is the one who is going to really be in the position to make decisions, and and we see her taking the necessary steps to get to that point, and and so this is something that the Tyrells, or at least the Queen of Thorns wants to happen. And, and so they're able to make it happen. And, I, and I'm actually surprised how quickly it does, you know, given the fact that Joffrey hasn't been gone that long. Um, I, I can understand where Cersei is coming from in, also in that Tywin. particular moment. And Tywin, yeah. This is where it gets interesting though, right? Because what we're seeing um, through these, what I found to be really dark and beautiful Cersei chapters in A Feast for Crows. I just love them. I thought that this just gothic and, again, dark scenario of them walking outside in the in the nighttime light being lit by the green glow of wildfire destroying one of the storied buildings of the Capitol was just so romantic and interesting. And we get even more of those just, I can't think of the word, just dark scenes later on involving Cersei, whether it involves the Faith Melitin or whether uh, the involves the High Sparrow, whether it's just her talking and scheming with the Kettleblacks or if a particular Kettleback, Kettleblack is hanging from the ceiling, uh, Cersei's chapters are pointing into a specific direction and the books haven't revealed that direction. But if we're to believe that what the show does with Cersei's character is canon, isn't it cool that we're seeing the necessary steps just kind of like the the prequel to star wars is like showing in whichever way that they could like how darth vader came into being it's like how does cersei get to the point where she's this supreme ruler in a sense in westeros right mm -hmm. and it sort of takes these steps like it, she has to have all these terrible things happen to her and then she has to right. systematically separate herself from every person that could possibly help her and steer her away from that goal. She has to push away everyone that she loves and everyone that loves her to the point where there's no love there anymore and she's truly alone. And that's like her only option is to be that, right? Mm -hmm. It's so cool to see that because it's even happening as much to, you know, the extreme where Jamie and her, it's so cool. Mm -hmm. She doesn't even trust him. I mean, that you, you talked about the before the conversation that the two of them had. And, and her internal monologue is, I will need to sweep them all away and surround the king with mine own people. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's just like you can you can almost feel the paranoia as she's going around. You know, it's almost like she's hyperventilating a bit as she's looking around the hall. You know, it's after that line where she says, no one who wears a crown is ever safe. And she goes from Mace Terrell uh, to Lord Redwin, to Lord Rowan, to Sir Kevin, to Lancel, to Sinel, to Grandmeister Pycelle. And she's just saying to herself, even Jamie, she can't fully rely upon or trust them. And there's three Lannisters that are mentioned in that breath. If you can't trust your own family, who are you going to trust? And mm -hmm. it seems like the only person she's willing to trust is herself. Mm -hmm. There's that such a telling scene when Tommen coughs. He like chokes on his wine a little bit and Cersei's heart stops beating and she knocks over one of the serving girls to get to him even though he was totally okay. And I think that that also continues to be just another telling moment of what makes her tick and like what's happening inside her head. Yeah. Um, 
as she navigates all these people that she can't trust. Hmm. I feel like Tommen is her last bastion of sanity, though. Oh, yeah. It's just going to push her over the edge. Yeah. Depending on what happens. We saw on the show that he, he left and she eventually discovered that he was gone. Right. And I'm sure that that's going to that's going to pour into why she is the way she is in season seven. But of course, that's not story canon. We don't know if it's all going to unfold in that same way or if the Tyrells are going to have a, a stronger sense of what they should do in the books, because it's it's just hard to believe that they underestimate Cersei so much where she's able to step up and become the supreme ruler. Like we saw her do it in a very swift way in the show. And again, if that's book canon, great. Like it makes a lot of sense. But Lady Olin is a smart lady. I don't know, mm-hmm. like, the, the Tyrells have to underestimate Cersei so much for her to come out of this, the victor, because they have, they have her completely cornered here, you know, like, they're, this is a swift defeat. I think they get a little cocky. I mean, because they, the fact that Tommen married Marjorie so quickly, as we were saying, is a little bit of a surprise, yeah. I feel like. And so maybe it's not a sense of them losing sight of who Cersei is, but getting a little cocky in their ability to have her under their thumb. I thought you were talking about Mace's hat. <laughs> it was pretty cocky. Yeah, that too. <laughs> He's a baller. Yeah. That too. I do kind of wonder though if Maggie the Frog's prophecy is is sort of becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, if she s- stops spending so much time focused on the idea that she's going to lose all her children and there's going to be a more beautiful queen than her um, if if maybe she could focus and have more clarity on the situation. But I guess that's kind of the nature of, of her character. Did you guys think about Daenerys when she repeated the Maggot the Frog's prophecy in her mind? And how it, they kept, she thought, you know, there's pretty much no way that Marjorie could be thought of as more beautiful than me. Her hair is brown and it's not quite as full as mine. And I just don't think that... You know, she's thinking like, really? Is Marjorie that much more beautiful than me? And I'm thinking, well, Daenerys is said to be the most beautiful woman alive right now. So if she comes over and takes everything away that you love, that would be an interesting thing to happen. Is that who the prophecy was about? What a twist. Could be. Yeah. And then not that long after, or maybe it's even a little bit before, she compares both Marjorie and Loras to herself and Jamie. So the wheel of time. Yeah. It's just interesting. I do think that Cersei sees some of herself in Marjorie and in the Tyrell's rise, because I think she's been in a similar situation. Like I think about why she's so angry that she, she doesn't want them wed because then they could, Marjorie can be sleeping with other men and have a child and it can be Tommen's or it can be told that it's Tommen's just exactly like her children were with Jamie, but they were Baratheon yeah. claimed by the Baratheon family. I think she may also be sort of paranoid in the fact that she can see, again, history repeating itself in sense of what Marjorie could do, what the Tyrells could do because she's been there because she knows full well what that could look like. Yeah, that's definitely part of her paranoia for sure. She sees it happening. She's probably kicking herself for allowing it to happen to get this far, but it was Tywin, you know? It wasn't her decision to let the Tyrells this deep into things, and now it's kind of all up to her to make sure that the Lannister initiative is still the best initiative, but, you know, like like she says at the very beginning of the chapter, uh, Tommen's hold upon the Iron Throne was not secure enough for her to risk offending Highgarden. The Tyrells have done, you know, they did what they needed to do. I'm well, just they have money. Well, that... And I'm just surprised that her paranoia is so much on the shoulders of, of 
Tyrion. Well, mm-hmm. we know that Tyrion did murder Tywin, and she does think that the Tyrells were involved. I'm just interested to to think that you know why it took the coin and that sort of red herring for her to be so interested because clearly the Tyrells like would have loved to get Ty gotten Tywin out of the way. Yeah, it's it's always been somewhat suspicious to me that she doesn't have a higher level of suspicion on the Tyrells, particularly the Queen of Thorns. I mean, I think and and. And maybe it's that, you know, she compares or, or she thinks she sees Maggie the Frog in, you know, Lena. And, and it's almost like, is she second guessing these people, right? She tried to think that she could really best Maggie the Frog by not making the prophecy come true, yet it's coming true anyway. And I feel like she almost just discounts Olena because she's an older woman who just couldn't possibly be somebody that could do what she has done. Am I off base there? I mean, I, I just don't think she, she gives her enough credit. She just sees her kind of as this senile, quippy old woman who is you know the matriarch of the Terrell family and doesn't look at, you know, sort of underneath who she could be. And she's quite the scheming, witty individual. I think you're right, Mike, and I think that that's just another major character flaw is the fact that she puts her own bias and own whatever you want to call it ahead of the reality of the situation and not not taking Olena's you know, snide comments as being her really understanding the situation and instead as an annoyance. Throwing this question out there, the the egg with the bloody half-formed chicken inside at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You would bring this up. Does that up. have any meaning? <laughs> or is it just, you know, really shitty dairy products <laughs> that she gets for breakfast? I saw it as a reason for her to start drinking early, but because <laughs> she just dismissed it and like, bring me some heated wine, some spiced warm wine. Let's do this now. I kind of had the same thought as you as just a reason for her to start drinking early, but... I could absolutely be off base and wrong. I promise you that Cersei's journey through A Feast for Crows and through the entire A Feast with Dragons reading order will be a roller coaster ride of fun and emotions. Who wants to go first? Look, I could, for Cersei, give it to the Queen of Thorns, who had some amazing one-liners throughout the chapter. I could give it to Joffrey, who made Cersei feel like no man ever had before. Um, when he took her nipple into his mouth. That was just weird, by the way. <laughs> Glad we didn't get into that. Um, but I'm actually going to give it to the Tower of the Hand slash Cersei's inner monologue when... Um, well, I'm just going to read it. Uh, Cersei thought of all the king's hands that she had known oh, through yeah. the years. Owen Merriweather, John Connington, Carlton Chelsted. John Arryn, Eddard Stark, her brother Tyrion, and her father, Lord Tywin Lannister, her father most of all. All of them are burning now, she told herself, savoring the thought. They are dead and burning, every one, with all their plots and schemes and betrayals. It's my day now. It's my castle and my kingdom. That's good. Pretty nice. Pretty nice. My... Top it. Well, I can't... I can't top it. Um... (laughs) I could give it to to um, Jamie for um, still asking Cersei to dance, even though he knows that she's insanely mad. <laughs> just thought that was kind of funny. Um, or also just for uh, rising up in his character. Jamie, you continue to um, make me 
Um, very fond of you, Jamie. But I'm going to give it to Cersei for for exploding the Tower of the Hand on her son's wedding night. <laughs> Casually. Yeah. I'm going to give my, my own to this line about the Tommen's wedding, where Cersei goes, no one wanted another lavish ceremony, least of all the queen, and no one wanted to pay for one, least of all the Tyrells. Yeah, that boy. Was pretty funny. Right. <laughs> for the Kraken's daughter, I'm going to give it to Asha slash Yara. Um, it's when uh, she's talking to Roderick and she says, does that mean we must live and die as thralls to the Iron Throne? If there are rocks to starboard and a storm to port, a wise captain steers a third course. To which he said, show me this third course. And she says, I shall at my queen's boot. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Mic drop. Mm-hmm. Love it. Pretty nice. I was going to give my own to the sides that were above the Lord's chair in Harlow Hall. They're so big that giants couldn't even lift them, which I'd like to see one one try, but I don't know if we ever will. Uh, I'm probably just going to give my own show to the fact that that's true. That's sad. Um, The fact that this is the first King's Moot in 4,000 years that's going to happen. And that's just pretty darn cool. a long time. And uh, I also should give my own to the like uh, fact that Asha knows that her uncle's going to go anyway. And also when she said, as much as you love history, like this is history happening right now. This is living history. I thought that that sort of self-referential uh, knowledge was pretty darn cool. So I'm excited to see history happen. Um, I'm going to give my own to an exchange between Asha and Roderick where she says, do you want to die old and craven in your bed? And he says, how else? But not until I'm done reading. Which I feel like I would like somebody to make into a cute Pinterest quote so I can put it on my bulletin board. Sam would like this guy. He would. Mm-hmm. Baby pals. All right, friends. Time for your owns. I'll read the first. Callie Marks on Facebook. Own for the Kraken's daughter goes to House Harlow for having a much better system for dividing up the wealth of the family and keeping everyone happy than House Frey. Always picking on House Frey. Sure, they all eagerly await the day Lord Harlow, di- Harlow dies, but at least they've got some decent seats to wait in. Cersei Young goes to Jamie for not taking Cersei's crap for one second during this chapter, but still coming back every few minutes to see if she's done being a jerk because she's going through a tough time. Very true. Mm-hmm. Hashtag, I will let you fill my wine cup. Hashtag, a cripple like me. Hashtag, not likely. Next on Facebook, we have Alma Lidman Bring, who says, For Kraken's daughter, Asha gets an own for telling Triss she wants adventures, not a dozen sons, but then promptly loses it for offering to put a woman in his bed. I guess the right to choose for yourself doesn't apply to other women. So my own goes to Roderick, the reader, for loving books, for going against everything that Ironborn value and still keeping his position, and for lines like, dead history is written in ink, the living sort in blood. Also the Archmaester Rigney reference. And then Cersei own, which I can't believe we didn't mention this. Cersei owned to Lady Olena for complaining that the bard wasn't playing the reigns of Castamere. Well done. The next own comes from Shaitanya Tapu. Well done. We'll go with it. Uh, Roderick Harlaw owned it in his correct metaphor about crows squabbling over the corpses of Westeros. And Ossifer Plum owned it when he fathered Viserys Plum just before dying. Or did he? Sylvia Maraquin writes, own to three tooth, still smiling at the thought of tasty condiments. I caught that after the mention of the large jar of mustard from Old Town. Whether it be three teeth or one. Owen to Lady Merriweather. She plays Cersei like a fiddle. Knows exactly what the paranoid wretch wants to hear, 
playing to her fears and vanity. Next on Twitter, we have Matthew Marilla, who says, Asha Own goes to Roderick the Reader for being one of the few Ironborn to think before to think for more than a second before he acts. <laughs> and then Cersei Own goes to Cersei for destroying Tyrion's remaining worldly possessions when she burns down the Tower of the Hand. Hashtag poor Tyrion. Mm-hmm. Talking about all the things it was burning down and it said, and all of the worldly possessions of Tyrion Lannister. <laughs> well, he'll get his. I don't think he cares. Our good friend Brienne of Tarth, Asha Owns, go to Roderick for doing what we all do and escaping into his books. And Asha for simply existing. Well, her Cersei own goes to Cersei for being surprisingly relatable as a mother terrified for her son hidden under a bitchy crust. Grantula at Heathen King, King of the Heathens, own to the Tower of the Hand, secret passages swallowed two guardsmen never seen again, but you could hear them behind the walls. That's so wild. Own to Marwyn, who found three pages of science importance, prophecies from Danis the Dreamer, whose visions saved the Targs from the doom. That's some history right there. Mm-hmm. And uh, also got an email in from Claire, who says, I've listened for a while, but been overall too lazy to actually participate. Well, <laughs> no longer. I love listening and I'm excited to at least try to participate. So much so that she combined the words to and participate to Tom participate. Which is a new word. Check it out. Uh, My Asha own goes to the Book of Lost Books for being more interesting to Roderick than a party. A man after my own heart, to be honest. (laughs) Has anyone figured out the use on Nuncle? Uncle and Nuncle are both used in this chapter, and I couldn't figure out the grammatical rule. And my Cersei own goes to Maggie the Frog for managing to still be in Cersei's mind after all these years. Until next week, Claire. P.S. I started this email sober, but I finished drunk. Sorry for typos. <laughs> we forgive you. Thanks for writing in, Claire. Sober or drunk, we appreciate your emails to Game of Owns. And there's one coming next week, apparently, too. Yeah, we can expect you to uh, Tom participate in the future, <laughs> Claire. Thanks to Claire for uh, sending in an email. We do occasionally get some of those to our inbox, right? Yeah, we get a lot of spam, too. But I thought you liked spam, or is that the other kind of spam? I've never had spam. Oh. This is sounding like a squad cast, Micah. <laughs> <laughs> this is. Well, if you would like to be just like Claire, you can send in your owns in a number of ways. Email is one of them. Contact at gameofowns.com. But like many of our other listeners, you can tweet at us at Game of Owns on Twitter or scroll upon our Facebook wall at facebook.com slash Game of Owns. And if you would like to listen to our other podcasts of which we talked about Westworld. It's a new show on HBO. That Hannah hasn't seen yet. I haven't seen it or yet. I, or Micah. Or but Micah. We, but we still talked about it. <laughs> or most people on this show. <laughs> yeah. Find that and more on our other podcast, A Squad of Ice and Fire, that you can gain access to by contributing to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash goo. It's Hannah's favorite podcast. Check it out. Very good show. Well, Zach, I would like to remind people, in case they have forgotten that there's going to be a convention going on next mm, summer. Yes. Taking place in Nashville, Tennessee. True. At a very luxurious condominium <laughs> with dragons flying <laughs> over. At a very luxurious hotel. Come on down to Nashville for Con of Thrones. Hannah's going to be there at the Battle mm-hmm. of Blackwater Bay pool party, won't you, Hannah? I am going to be there. She's going to be burning down 
the uh, every tower. tower. Of the hand. Yeah, so choose your hotel room wisely. <laughs> hey, listen, guys, we've got fantastic insurance. So thank you for the thousands of you, literally, who have uh, who have uh, pledged your fealty to attend the con. It's going to be crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So June thirtieth to July second, Nashville. Mark your calendars. So check out conofthrones.com for all the latest information. And come back to Game of Owns. Keep listening. Next week, chapters are the Soiled Knight. And Brienne 3. Bring it on. Bring, Bring it, on. it on. Can't wait. I'm really I love, excited. I love these chapters. Like Some of them are so easily uh, decipherable, right? The, the, the titles that they give you. Some of them aren't. It's like the Soiled Knight. Who could that be? Who could it be? I guess we're going to have to find out. 